X-ray. I'm trying to think of a five-letter beer word. Mash, no. Louder, no. Yes. No, louder no. six. Six. <laughs> Warloff. <laughs> It's the Beervana Show, broadcast almost live in Portland on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. I am Patrick Emerson, professor of economics at Oregon State University, and with me as always is Jeff Allworth, author of the newly released Beer Bible 2nd Edition. I don't, know how, I don't know for how long you can say newly released. Yeah, I'm going to have Recently, to that. I think we might be in the recent release territory. Yeah. About six months ago, so whatever that is. Yeah, I say that's recently released. Recently released. <laughs> Beer Bible Second Edition, available at all your favorite local independent bookstores, and if you must, at Amazon and other big non-independent bookstores. That's right. Either way, buy the book so Jeff can feed his family. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sally would really like you to buy that book. Hey, Jeff. By the way, do you do the Wordle? I do do Wordle. Okay, so. What is the what is your criteria for success? Uh, not getting skunked. Now you know. always how many how many times have you not gotten the word? Uh, it's not the question of whether I've gotten the word; it's whether I cheat and go online and do, oh, you know. Wow, that's sad. I've never want. No, that's not true. I've once opened a dictionary when I was a little bit stuck. <laughs> I've yeah. only missed the word once because it was one of those things where you got five, uh, four of the five letters, but it, it was like eight different words it's could like fit. A T C H, and you go watch. No hatch. No exactly. Hatch, no <laughs> damn it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but my criteria for success, I uh, if you get it on the first one, that's ridiculous. That's just stupid. If you get it on the second one, that's luck. Absolutely. There's no way that's Unless, not luck. I mean, if your first one is really good, you can get it on the second uh, one. If you get like second one's luck. You get on the third. If you third get third is skill. Third is my criteria. The third is where, you, if you're really skilled, you can get it on the third one. I, the majority of the time, I get it. Like I'm my still mode, happy on the fourth. My mode is my mode is third, so I think I've got. Oh, that's good then. Yeah, yeah. my mode is fourth probably. Um, but that's my, because you cheat, so I don't care. I don't then, cheat. I don't cheat that often. And do you do it on the hard mode or the regular mode? Well, I still do it on the pre-New York Times version, which is still available. Uh, and Sally, what? like her phone, like moves her over, and she can't get back to what? it. I'm, I'm, I'm dug in because the early one, you know, the whole story about Wordle, right? Yeah, sort of. Uh, I an guess. English guy invented it for yeah. his wife, yeah. and she, and his wife was like me. I'm bad at. You would think a person who traffics in words as I do would be very good at Wordle. I'm not. Well, it's I'm a, really good at Wordle. I'm terrible at Wordle. I'm excellent at Wordle. I, I look at I'm it. probably the best Wordle player. <laughs> I will tell you how bad I am at Wordle. This is a classic Jeff Wordle story. Yesterday, on the other one, uh, the word was there. T-H-E-R-E. -E. Oh, I didn't do it yesterday. And no. I, I got, and at this point, Coming no one's going to scream at me because this is, by the time you listen, it's going to be a couple of weeks past. But uh, I got... Uh, I, I did pretty good on the first one. I got a couple of letters. The second one, I had gotten up to three letters, and two of them were in the right place. So I was really rocking. And the third one, my guess was there, T-H-E-I-R. And I had – so I had T-H-E was correct, and I had R in the wrong place, but it was a correct letter. So all I had to do was come up, arrange those last things, and it took me forever. This and at one point, sad. I said to Sally, there is no word that – 
Uh, that fits this thing. I'm like, what is this? Pepper? That's not a word. Thudder? That's not a word. Oh my gosh. And then, and then it's because my brain doesn't work. That is jumble. pretty sad. That, is, that's, yeah. that's bad. And then I'm like, oh, it's a homonym for the one I just guessed. <laughs> so I, I always forget to turn on. I mean, uh, I always do it the hard way, which I never use a, a letter that I know I can't use. And I never use a letter in a place that I know it can't be used. Right. And that's the hard mode, but I always forget to turn on hard mode. Oh, really? That's hard mode? Yeah. I, that's because just the mode one everyone would use, right? No, like you can you can guess another word just to try to find the right letters, even though you know that like it doesn't start with T, you can do another word that starts with T if you don't have it in the hard mode. That never occurred to yeah, me. In fact, <laughs> I would show Sally some of my early ones and she would say, why did you use the same letter in the second one? I was like, because when I did it, I didn't realize I was using the same letter in the second one. Uh, I was like, so yeah. you, can, you can turn that you can turn that feature on that it won't let you pick those words. Well, that I should turn that feature on because that is the mode. I just yeah, I feel and like then you're badass, and then when you share results, which I never do because I find that obnoxious, but when you share your results, it'll tell you it'll say you, these results are from the badass mode. Uh, oh, I did not know that. And are you? I assume you're using the the New York Times, right? I don't know. I just you know I get on my browser and I just punch in Wordle and it takes me wherever. Which yes, is the New York Times these days. I didn't know you could still go to some other site. Yeah, I'm still rocking the original because the original one was made for this man made it for his his sort of dull witted wife who is sort of like me. <laughs> wow, is that how he described her? <laughs> uh, no, but he said he knew that she didn't like these kinds of games and she wanted it to be simple enough for her to figure out. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, yes. Yeah, well, and that is the, the genius of it is that it's just simple enough, you know. But the New York Times made it much harder and did things like they did. Yeah, they, so now now the words are more obscure because he loaded. Uh, pretty common words. Now the words are more obscure, and they're more more repeating letters. Like the first guy when he did. Yes, it. I've noticed this. Yeah. Like I uh, used to never guess repeating letters, and now I realize you better start thinking of repeating letters, or you're yeah. in trouble. Okay. <laughs> but there's only so many five letter words in the English language, right? So yeah, but that. All right, we got to get off Wordle because it's a, it's a finite number, but it's a large number. <laughs> We're gonna have to change the name of our podcast. But last question. Do you have a starting word that you always use? I do not. And that's that's a, that's a point of pride. I always just sit there until really? a word comes to me and I go for it. Oh, that's stupid. No, no wonder brilliant. you're terrible at this. No, no because, wonder you have to cheat. Because sometimes, no, it's brilliant. Because sometimes, I remember one time I did chasm. Uh-huh. Not a, not a word that you would naturally, there's only one vowel. Uh, you got the C, you got the M. These are not common letters. Yeah. I got like four. It was awesome, and if I'd done my regular thing, it would just be boring. I'm not. I'm not a boring guy. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a lively, You're not a strategic mind. guy. Clearly, because what you need to do is load your first word up with vowels. About I do sometimes. That is a, a one that I. I it kind I of annoys me because I I avoided this word, but my son finally convinced me I got to use it. I would I would do audio because it gives you four vowels, but it doesn't give you e, which is one of the most common vowels. So he uses adieu which is a French word, which shouldn't be allowed anyway, but it does have four vowels, including E. Well, you guys are entirely not uh, whimsical enough. And that's just, that's just like, that's a grinder mode. I do not play grinder. One day there'll be a beer word in there and you won't get it. And you'll be very sad. I'm trying to think of a five letter beer word. Mash. No. Louder. No. Yes. No. Louder. Six. Six. (laughs) Warloff. <laughs> uh, <laughs> bottle? Nope. No. Damn it. Hops with two S. Hops. <laughs> Water. Water. There you go. Okay. That we'll call that a beer one. That's actually not a bad idea because that's got all distinct. I mean, I would never use something that 
has multiple of the same letters in the first one, obviously. All right, let's get let, let's get past Wordle. Everybody hates Wordle talk. We have just alienated everyone. They, they hate Wordle talk. Why would they hate well, Wordle talk? Well, they hate Wordle talk if they don't play Wordle. If they play Wordle, they're very interested in Wordle talk. Yeah, our our listeners play Wordle. I'm, <laughs> I'm confident. Uh, certainly, ex post this podcast. The only ones left will be the ones. Uh, <laughs> so we just we've just screened out all of the 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 people who aren't worthy of our podcast. And a little a little peek behind the screen. We've never mentioned Wordle to each other in our lives. So that was the first time we've ever mentioned Wordle. So that's interesting that we decided to do it live on the pod. Yes, that's true. Yeah. But I was saving it for pod for pod banter. It was genius. Yes, it Eight was. Eight minutes in, and all we talked about is Wordle. <laughs> I know that is genius. Amazing. <laughs> Let's talk about Wordle in the pod. Well, we haven't talked about the weather, so there you go. There you are. We're, mix- you, we're you mixing it up. I had a whole another pod fodder, but I'll leave it for next time. All right. I'll have to remember though. Yeah, you'll never bad. remember. I'll never remember. Uh, so how have you been, Jeff? I've been doing just great since the last time we recorded this. Jeff, how's podcast. the weather outside, Jeff? Why, the weather is brilliant. It's Ooh. spring in Portland. It, is. it could it be is nicer. Nice. It is nice. I have a big cherry tree outside my house, which I planted. I'm very proud of this because I planted it about 10 years ago, and now it's huge, and it's glorious. This is the moment. Wait, right? this, is, this is not your, your regular cherry tree, which somebody planted like 80 years ago. No, that's the one in the back. That's oh, in the humongous. Front. It's also glorious, but it happens a few weeks later. Gotcha. It's got white. It's white petals and it's like snow because it's huge now. It's giant. Yeah. And then it just rains down these white petals. It's wonderful. But no, the one in the front uh, like the um, Reflecting Pond in D.C. or Waterfront Park in Portland. It's these Akibono the uh, Jap- Japanese cherry tree that's pink. Are the blossoms in a little basket? Oh, I don't know. There's just blossoms. You're a grinder. Hell, you, don't, you don't know about windy. <laughs> I'm talking about my beautiful pink cherry tree that's in full bloom right now. And you want to know where there's baskets. I don't know those baskets, man. It's got petals and little baskets. Uh, I'll check it out and I'll report back to you next pod. Thank you. Anyway, it is nice. Spring is nice. I'm finding spring particularly cathartic this year. And I think it has more to do with COVID than weather because weather's been whatever, normal. It's been totally normal. Normal for climate change, normal. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been pretty normal. We did have a long, longer period of sunshine than we normally do. But well, we just have more, more sunshine and more rain, more heavy rain. Yeah. Rather than more constant gray gloom. Though the last the last month has been mostly gray gloom, and when it rains, it doesn't rain very hard. Yeah. Anyway, I'm feeling cathartic because it's spring, and because like mask restrictions off, and I've already had COVID plus three vaccines, so I don't care. I'd walk in anywhere without a mask, and I feel fine. Omicron BA.2 is coming to yeah, us, baby. Bring it on, baby. Bring it on. I'm ready for it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My wife is still surprisingly cautious. She's very nervous. Well, she's a grade school teacher, so she also feels like a responsibility to her kids. Yeah. But, but, but you know, my, my son and myself both got symptomatic COVID, and I'm sure she got it too, either asymptomatic or she fought it off. Either way, she's beat the Omicron too. So, Yeah, we're almost to summer. It's all golden. <sighs> Man, what a weird two years, huh? Oh, boy. Let's not even talk so about So here's that. the thing. Let's, let's bring this back to beer. Let's, maybe we should talk about what we're going to talk about. Let's, bring, let's bring this back to beer. One more thing before we bring it back to beer is that <laughs> it's been a tough year for restaurants, pubs, all these on-site places. And, you know, you and I have both noticed that pubs are sort of less busy than usual. Mm-hmm. But I actually am thinking now we might be ready almost to the point where the reverse problem happens, that there's so many places that have closed down. 
or have kind of stuck with their COVID routines now. It's like, oh, let's take out things pretty cool. Let's not hire wait staff and have people around. That we're going to have an over uh, abundance of demand. We're going to have too much demand and not enough supply. That's, that's a very interesting point. I mean, I typically go to uh, breweries and brew pubs and places that have beer. And in Portland, Oregon, those thrive pretty well. But you're right. Number of restaurants are closed here. A lot of restaurants are closed. And so now when people are all of a sudden ready to go back to restaurants, there's just not going to be enough. Which I guess, you know, it's kind of a good problem to have, but. You know. Well, not for those restaurants that closed. <laughs> oh, that's true. <laughs> but, you know, that will leave some, some, some runway for new, 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 new restaurants to take off or old restaurants to reborn or something. You're an unsentimental creative destruction guy. Uh, that's true. <laughs> kind of, that's kind of true. I'm I'm more just a grumpy guy that doesn't like to have to wait. Yeah, I'm I'm there too. <laughs> I'm old. I'm one of those cranky old people. What? Thirty minutes for a table? Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's talk about beer. How about as a as a novelty? I guess me giving you the thumbs up is probably not good radio. So uh, <laughs> yes, carry on, sir. So uh, we've been doing this for a while. It turns out. And early on, when we first started doing the pod, we would do these deep dives into style. And because we didn't want to be repetitive, we've often sort of hesitated. But way, way back in pod 16, this is like 800 years ago, Jeff and I tackled the Trappist beers of Belgium. Go listen, by the way. It's good stuff. Uh, But in the time since that program aired, four new monastic breweries have opened. And in all, a baker's doesn't have started in the past decade. We thought it would be fun to revisit monastic brewing, discuss whether Abbey Ales are more or less a style with their arrivals, and a taste a couple of the new ones. All that soon, but first, the news. Stone Brewing and Olson Coors made their closing arguments a couple of weeks ago in one of the weirder lawsuits in recent times. Oh, yeah. Several years back, Molson Coors, then Miller Coors, began advertising Keystone Light with a single, prominent, all-caps word, STONES. That raised the ire of San Diego's Stone Brewing, who claimed trademark infringement and demanded restitution. In the course of the trial, it emerged that Stone Brewing is in financial trouble and is hoping to win the case to help pay off debt. The surreal arguments have culminated... uh, may have culminated when CEO Gavin Hattersley, who had been with the, in the beer business for two decades, admitted he had no idea how beer was made. <laughs> His lawyer said that Keystone was made, quote, of the aftermath of Coors Light. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. CEO Gavin Hattersley of uh, uh, Molson, Molson Coors. Coors. Yeah. Okay. I just want to make, make sure sorry. it's clear. Yeah. Yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> the aftermath, of course, like that's about as a perfect description as ever has been. I know. And there was, there were, the, the entire beer world said, what the hell? What does that mean? <laughs> what are you talking about? Uh, it's still not clear. By the way, if you're the CEO of a big brewery, does it matter that you know how beer is made? You kind of like to think that they would have some idea. Yeah. You, you know, I can, I can tell you in less than a minute how beer is made. It's not a complicated thing. Yeah, in, in, in a way that every I know you he, absolutely, especially he's been in the business twenty years. So if he they just hired him from Pepsi or whatever, right. and he's been there a couple of years, okay, you know maybe he hasn't been down to the brew house yet. He's got his head in the financials. That's fine. Um, you know he's managing uh, aluminum crises and all that. But 
No, 20 years, you know, you should know how to make beer. I mean, I, at least somehow you should know how to make beer, at least in the broad strokes. Yeah. No, I, I don't, I don't forget. I don't know if you remember way back in the eighties, uh, Michael Moore did a show called uh, a movie called Roger and me. Of course I remember. Do you remember he, he invited a CEOs to come change the oil in their own vehicles? No, I don't remember that. Part. Yeah, it was, a, it was, it was a way of shaming them for not knowing the you know, the most basic part of their business. Out of touch with the rank and file. Yeah. And I think it was Ford, but one of the CEOs knew he came down, and he, and he opened it up and changed the oil. And it was like the best PR for that company they ever got. Right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, Hattersley would have looked a lot better if he'd said that he'd known how to make beer or something. Yeah. But uh, so I'm going to be really like pragmatic. Like I'm uh, as an economist, let's think, you know, uh, how much does it matter in the business of the, I mean, it matters, right? It like, matters. You got, you got to know about inputs. all, you got to know exactly. You got to know about hops. You got to into production. Yeah. You're buying and selling on the futures markets. You're, yeah. yeah that it, just seems weird that you wouldn't know how beer is made if you're the CEO of a beer company. Yes, it's very weird. It seems there's also a needed curiosity there. That, yeah, just, that's uh, even uh, more damning, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> like, wouldn't you want to know? Yes. How you make what you're selling? Yes, that's that's the thing that really I think offended me the most. Yeah, I agree, hundred percent. That's that's ridiculous. <laughs> uh, anyway. Uh, yeah, we actually commented that commented on this back when this first came out. Right when they, when they grab a stone, it. yeah. In order, it, when they're referring to Keystone, yeah, um, yeah, it'd be interesting. It was in in its in, it's fascinating. It went to trial because I I do a lot of like consult economic consulting on the side, and almost everything I do doesn't ever go to trial because trials are risky and expensive, and so that's 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 that means that. Miller Coors, either one thinks that they have a strong case or two thinks they can just cost stone out of the trial, right? Like, Yeah, I mean, if they thought that, they clearly failed on that point. But I mean, I, I don't know. I haven't followed it a little bit. It seems to me like stone uh, is in, in – they had a hard case to make, and I don't think they made it very well. Oh, really? Yeah. No, that's what I was about to ask. Yeah. Skek, huh. Molson Coors, then Miller Coors. There's a lot of evidence they've been using stones since the 90s. So, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not the biggest stone fan, but I'm still rooting for them. Let's, you know. Well, and I think uh, people don't like to get into the grubby uh, world of uh, copyright infringement. The truth is, or uh, trademark infringement. But if you don't protect your mark, then you lose it. And so these companies have to do it. So I, I'm a lot more sympathetic and find it less odious. Um, so, uh, yeah, anyway, it's, it was the whole thing was curious. Yeah. All right, moving on. On the day Russia invaded Ukraine, February 24th, Lana Svetankova had a blog post queued up about emerging indigenous styles in her home country. It had a fairly generic name locally, Golden Ale, and typically presents as a strong sweet ale, around 7% ABV, with a subdued hop character. Some examples include coriander. Uh, in, some examples include coriander. Oh, brother. Ironically, the invasion may supercharge Lana's effort to popularize the style. Partly as a way of supporting Ukraine, brewers across the globe have begun making the style. Ukrainian golden ale, is that what they call it? What do they call it? Well, I, yeah, I mean, we everyone's calling it Ukrainian golden ale, but I think in Ukraine, they probably just well, call yes. it. No, but I mean, I mean, the brewers that are trying to support Ukraine, I'd right. put the name in there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Lana was even a little bit bashful kind of it seemed like she was slightly embarrassed about it because uh, it, it's really made as, as a sort of uh, entry point beer, not 
you know, to not overwhelm people because craft beer is, is less than a decade old in, right. in, uh, in, in Ukraine. Um, but I don't know, reading the contours of it, it seems pretty, it seems like a legitimate style to me. It doesn't seem like anything else out there. It's uh, the, the finishing gravity is very high. So it's got a lot of sugar left mm. in it. It's still quite strong. Um, so, uh, it, they usually make sense to me if you're going to put coriander in it. That's right. And so some people have called it just like a Belgian strong ale, but those beers are nowhere near, usually not that, that sweet. And, um, right. these are made typically with English ale yeast. So their, their, their ester profile is going to be totally different. So mm. I don't know. Um, I think, <laughs> I think it's a curious, uh, development and it would be, it would be really such a perfect example of the way culture impact Im- impacts beer. Yeah. If uh, if it was the, the the effect of a war in Ukraine that that made this kind of like a, a fixture of national pride, right. and they started wearing uh, brewing it people around the world started knowing. It. That's kind of how beer always reflects culture. So that would be a, a really perfect example of how it's all. Uh, we we you know there's no real good reason why people drink. Um, strong, highly attenuated uh, spiced beers in Belgium and low alcohol uh, cask conditioned beers not very far away in Britain, except that culture is weird and you can't figure it out. So right. anyway, I'm, I'm really rooting for Ukrainian golden ale. Yeah, yeah. If we were still brewing beer, we, we wouldn't, I would encourage us to make it, but we haven't brewed beer in forever. Yeah, well, maybe that'll spur us on. Yeah, Ukraine. Let's hold the mail, baby. Yeah, let's in spirit support. That's right, Ukraine <laughs> by brewing beer. Uh, no, but that's cool. Yeah, and I think many people who are doing it are, are sending the proceeds back to Ukraine or to a uh, charity that's supporting Ukraine. So it's yeah. cool. Okay, well, shall we get to the main topic? Let's get to the main topic. All right. So years ago, we talked about Trappist Sale. I know you want to talk about the new Manassas breweries, but I think before that we should probably just kind of set the scene here yeah what is a what is a trappist brewery what are who are trappists what are what is their beer and why do we care i think partly uh i'm gonna say that we should expand a little bit past trappists because when we talk about all these new breweries a lot of them are not trappists Mm -hmm. um, because the trappists were really the the holders of the flame during the period uh the last century and they did well in belgium and kind of got everybody going but now other other orders are getting into it right um and what's curious is that so there, there actually are a number of monastic breweries in in germany too but that that tradition is less like uh there's much more bleed over to just monastic names and so it doesn't have as much potency in the marketplace or, or as, it's not as distinctive in the minds of, right. of germans as it has been in belgium and in germany they just brew the same kind of beers that other people Whereas in Belgium, they, they tend to brew, brew beers that have come to be thought of as Abbey Ales, kind of a particular range of strong beers uh, that we, and the last time in, in podcasting, which I re-listened to because uh, I was curious how, how we sounded, I, I, I really, really regret to report that we have not gotten at all better. <laughs> We're just as bad as we've always been. Our and audio must be smartly better. We had just switched to the... the, the uh, that episode was the first episode we used the mic that you're now sitting the mic is still in front of my face okay yeah so we had that the first 15 episodes are apparently the bad ones and that 16 starts out to be the good one um so 
what I was curious about was the three beers that we tasted are the three beers that I, if you, if you ask me to say, we're going to do Adia, which should we do? I would use West Mala Triple, mm-hmm. Rushmore 8 or 10, we did 8, uh, and Orval. And right. that's exactly what we did on that podcast. So that <laughs> kind of and it captures the full range that you get in that uh, in that in that sphere. So it's it's funny that uh, <laughs> I would still say that. So take us through the history really quickly. Like, why why is it that this particular style particular style evolved and became associated with the Trappists? Yeah. So the 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 Trappists are uh, related. Uh, they're kind of a, a reform version of Benedictine monks. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you go, the Benedictines are really old order. They go back to like the five or six hundreds. And way back when that order was first founded, uh, they created a thing called the um, the, the Rule of St. Benedict. Mm-hmm. So that would govern all the monasteries in the Benedictine order. And one of the key features was that you should be self-sufficient. Right. So the, the Benedictine monasteries, the Cistercians, who are another version of Benedictines that kind of split off and the Trappists who are yet another version. Mm-hmm. It's like each one was like, we're not hardcore enough. We've got to get more hardcore. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, they like, you're too mainstream. Um, so all three of those all abide by the order of St. Benedict. And so these are the monasteries where you go, they might be selling jams or honey or whatever. Right. Um, they also sometimes sell uh, beer as a way of supporting themselves. And, uh, you know, beer and wine was always something monasteries made anyway as a part of the production. They would often own land where they grow grains uh, or, or if they're down in wine country, they would grow grapes and you could preserve that. You could sell it. You could offer it to visitors. You could drink it. And you could drink it on the monastery. And uh, so that tradition went up until the French Revolution when Napoleon... Uh, laid waste to many of the monasteries, uh, including all the monasteries in, in Belgium. And they, so all, all those monasteries quit brewing around the, the turn of the 19th century, around 1800, yes. Sorry, was this purposeful? Like, was there something about the monasteries that yeah. Napoleon didn't like? Yeah, yeah, he was he was an anti <laughs> an anti-papist. He okay. wanted, yeah, he wanted, he felt like uh, these, the, this was a, a power center that he wanted to smash. And, yeah. Um, he returned. He would, in many cases, he would burn them to the ground. In other cases, he would he would uh, you know turn turn them over to the town or give, you know in some ways chase the monks off. Oh, I didn't know this about Napoleon. Yeah, uh, but then eventually Napoleon died and and the monks came back. And uh, in Belgium, beginning around the turn of the nineteenth century, so like a hundred years after Napoleon, or the twentieth century, a hundred years after Napoleon, they started brewing again. And and at that point, they were making beers that we would now recognize as, as abbey style ales right. which are uh typically strong um the early versions were almost always brown mm-hmm. um the trap the, the the triple was west mala's first kind of foray into lighter beers which they started in the 1930s um and it wasn't very popular until 60 years later or something right. uh, it, it was they were still a double they were still known for their double much more which they actually made i was shocked to see that they still make their double because they're still known for their triple right. um but then in other breweries like uh, rochefort they still just uh, until very recently only made two two dark beers um at uh west Blatter and they make dark beers so dark beers are kind of common she married dark beers right. uh so strong dark yeast driven Classic Belgian beers, refermenting in the bottle for 
um, billowing uh, effervescence. Right. Uh, the yeast character will give it both uh, a phenolic or spicy note and also a fruity note. And depending on how long, uh, how warm they allow their beers to ferment, that'll be stronger or weaker. Right. Um, tend to be fairly thin, uh, despite how strong they are because they use a lot of sugar. Um, but malt character is, is typically a part of it. And, and uh, uh, in one of these, we're going to get a lot of that uh, that we have today. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the contours. Was and there anything specific to to their you know own? I don't know what you describe it, kitchen gardens or something that 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 caused this, or was it just sort of an accident of history? I mean, yeah, I, I mean, you mean the way that they developed into into these recipes, these beers, yeah, yeah. The well, who knows what they were making before Napoleon? I mean, I think that's kind of lost to the yeah, yeah. The sands of time. So we're talking about the post-Napoleon era. Yeah, in the post-Napoleon era, they had to start rebrewing, and so they just looked around. They, mm -hmm. they looked at Belgian traditions because they were monks, and uh, they would bring in uh, Belgian Belgian brewers to help them out. Um, in the case of Portal, which is a real bizarre one that's not like any of the others, yeah. uh, it's got it's dry hopped and it's got wild yeast in it. Right. Um, they had a, a weird combination of a German brewmaster and an English advisor. And so they, they ended up with this kind of weird, funky beer. Um, oh, so that's fascinating. So they're just sort of learning how to brew beer again. Yeah. Yeah, they're monks. They don't know anything. Right. So they gotta they got to reach out to people who know how to brew So it wasn't this some, some sort of really deep, inherent, insular thing that caused this... It was just the just the moment in time and how they yeah actually that's fascinating yeah it is fascinating and and what's what I for for the purposes of our podcast today I think what's really fascinating is that those six monastic breweries that that were flourishing in Belgium mm -hmm. became known as like if you're gonna make monastic beer you make it in in, a, in this kind of style right right uh, end up being the defining yeah. style yeah. Overlooking the fact that Germany has this tradition, right. and they're making like when Sally and I were there, we went to a, uh, a monastery and they made a, a, a dunkel. Right. <laughs> it was it was in Franconia, right? So of course, um, but people don't breweries don't typically make a think like we're going to make our one beer will be a dunkel. Um, they I think there's a sense of it being special, and this all comes out of this Belgian tradition. They're strong. They're special. They're often Cajun core. You know, they're right. they're beautiful kind of. They're not everyday beers. They're special beers. Yeah. Uh, so I was kind of curious. Now that we have all these other brewers, I'm going to kind of trot through them and taste a couple. And while you do that, why don't I get started? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, start with the under. All right. Because so, the other one is going to potentially be very weird. I'm <laughs> okay. So Jeff, Jeff has two. Uh, uh, beers from new Trappist breweries. Uh, if you if you want to look at the uh, in the blue, yeah, okay, thank you. First is Zundert, uh, and yeah, you pronounce this the, from the Maria Tovlucht Abbey, sure, in the Netherlands. Uh, this is an abbey that started in 2013. Is that what the num the date brewing? Start brewing in 2013. Okay, so it's located in the Dutch town where Vincent van Gogh, van Gogh, very nice, was born. <laughs> dating all our all our many Dutch listeners are going to be rolling in there, uh, rolling around in pain. Yeah, dating only to 1899, the monks themselves brewed the brewery's two beers, eight and ten, phenolic and toffee-like, but gentle. 
The beer is named for the town, but the brewery has its own name. Die Kivit. 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 Which is the Dutch name for Northern Lapwing, depicted on the bottle. Oh, the Northern Lapwing, which is a bird. And you can see it on there, which oh. is kind of, uh, it's, it's subtle. It's like, there's this cool bird. What's up with that? And you don't realize it. Is. Oh, it's, it's, it refers to the town. The town and therefore the name of the beer. Yeah. All right. So this is the eight and I'm going to open it now. <laughs> Here we go. I recently, through just random circumstance, had the, this beer. And, oh, okay. That's uh, how you know. I was like, the tasting notes were interesting. Yeah, uh, it's really good. Uh, so I thought I, this, this next one, which is an Italian one, it has got a, an interesting ingredient, and uh, I'm not sure how to <laughs> Yeah, so the other one we'll talk about is an Italian one we'll get to later. All right, so this is the Zondert from the Netherlands. So typically uh, you expect these to have strident effervescence, which it has. Uh, and these, this, I wouldn't call this brown. It's more a dark amber. Dark amber, yeah. So, which is also pretty typical. Um, the, this haze, this darkness to, uh, like really brown, would be kind of classic for this style. Yeah. The old, the old Belgian beers were always boiled for a really long time, so they got dark. They got really brown. This one has a little bit of spice in it, mm-hmm. um, but the 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 tradition is that if you put spice in it, you don't put a lot. You, what you want is the spices that harmonize and, and maybe even kind of uh, chameleons for the native flavors of spice that you get from the yeast. So it the, makes it, it, you know, it can never have enough of that yeast flavor, which is spicy. So yeah. you, sometimes you like, you'd add more spice, get even more. That's like the, the essence of Belgian beer. So uh, uh, the... The sort of the, the notes on the nose are are sort of spicy and and um, yeah toffee is not a bad not a bad word to describe it but this is what you describe as the phenols uh-huh. which are the spicy notes and then uh, the fruity notes are not uh, yeah so those would be esters. esters okay so phenols and esters I should know this by now sure. after 158 episodes I know especially hearing me yammer on about it obviously right. you don't <laughs> listen very closely. <laughs> But luckily, I forget, and so it's all like new. It's like every day is a new day to me. It's true. It makes you a good interviewer. So this one um, is highly phenolic, but I don't. I'm not getting many fruity esters at all. No, it's got some sweetness, but it's not. Um, Maybe a little stone fruit, but yeah, it's not yeast sweetness. It's uh, it's it's a lot of. Uh, mm. Well, that's really good. Yeah, I uh, your toffee. I would never have identified it myself, but. You put that in my head, and yeah, I, I think it's a really good descriptor. And it, it's clearly made with uh, some kind of sugar, uh, and mm-hmm. it, it nevertheless has a lot of malt character. So that sweetness is, comes from the sugar partly, but also the malt is um, it's toffee-like. It's a little bit of biscuit in there. It's true. Yeah, that's a good uh, a good point. It's not as dry as what I normally associate with. It's yeah, it's a full. It's a full beer, and it's yeah. it's nicely. Uh, do we know the alcohol content? The the uh, it's not it's not hot, which I really like. Uh, that's always a sign, I think, of a, of a, of a well made beer. Eight percent, so you know, 
could be hot, but it's not. It's nice Wait a and minute. What do you mean by hot? Well, like the alcohol does not hit you hard. Yeah, which I don't like, but I've never heard this term before. This one I'm pretty sure that you never mentioned. Hot? Hot, yeah. This really? is new to me. 158 episodes and I'm learning all this new stuff. <laughs> I would just say the alcohol, like I complain about that all the time. It's true. I mean, there's a warming, the warming sense of alcohol. I understand now what the term means, but I don't know that I've ever sort of used it as a term of art or heard you use it as a term of art. I, wow, this has been a great day. <laughs> <laughs> Phenols yeah. and hotness and, wow. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, you're, you are kind of allergic to, uh, I am, I'm really sensitive to alcohol. No, I don't, I don't get that at all. I would not have pegged this 8% beer Yeah, at all. It does have a warming quality. I mean, you can I mean, almost kind it of. It has that deep know. warming quality right. that you get later. Yes. But exactly. not that, not that hotness in the mouth. Thank you, yeah. Jeff. Yeah. Thank you. You know, it's like an infant that starts learning to express himself through vocabulary. And it's like all of a sudden the world opens up. Now this has happened to me. I have a new term. So while we're drinking this, let's let's just mention some of the new ones that have come along because it's kind of cool. Uh, some of these were before our last podcast, but a lot of them were, were after, uh, and they're not. Most of them are not in Belgium, although there are a couple that are, which is also interesting. That is interesting. But wait yeah. a minute, before you get going, these are all monasteries. These are all monastery breweries. Okay. So, so the, the the Trappists made a big deal in Belgium about uh, because everybody was trying, everybody loves the idea of monks making beer. So right. a bunch of commercial breweries just put monks on there and say, "Ha ha!" and had a, and like, yeah, exactly. And then the you know, they were really trading on the, the, the actual monastic uh, brewery. So they, they got a bunch of laws passed and, change, and you know, and, and were able to protect their Trappist mark, which you can right. see on bottles here. That's got the classic Trappist mark. Uh, oh, yeah. And authentic Trappist product. And it created kind of a, a mind space. So these other ones, we've got Norbertine, Cistercian, Benedictine. Uh, they also sort of subscribe to the same thing. Like it's the... They're, these are monasteries. They brew. The money goes to support the monastery. Okay. So, yeah. Uh, one of the first, and a few of these are in the beer Bible. So uh, the first edition of the beer Bible, and then a lot of them I had to add later because uh, they they were really new when I wrote the beer Bible, and now we just have a ton of them. That's why you need uh, volume two? That's why we need two. Sorry, excuse me. You always called it that, So, but this time you didn't mean it. <laughs> yeah, so stiffed. Engelsel uh, in Engelzell. Austria. Uh, so one thing I was really curious about is like, is this going to carry over into, is this style of beer going to carry over into the brewing traditions of other countries? Will right. they import the Belgian thing? Yeah. So what is what is a stiff Ingus, Ingels, Engelsel? Engelsel. Engelsel. They make a strong saison and yeah. a strong dark ale named Gregorius. So... Uh, oh, a pale ale and a wheat ale. So they make two of the classic styles there. Mm -hmm. So that's interesting. We have Bira and they're in Austria. They're in Austria. Yep. We have in Italy. We have a Bira Nursia from 2012. Both of these were 2012. They make a spiced Belgian pale ale and a dark Belgian 10% mm -hmm. beer. Then we have Zundert, which is the one we're drinking now, 2013. And we have what? 
a Belgian style beer, which is not so surprising given this Netherlands. And La Trappe is actually one of the kind of classic Belgian imprint, you know, in, in air quotes, uh, uh, Trappist breweries, mm-hmm. but it's actually in, in the Netherlands. So I'm not totally surprised that Zundert is following the Belgian yeah. approach because they're sort of in that catchment area, one of the low countries, you know. By the way, did you mention that Bier Inertia is Italian from Italy? I did. Okay, good. Yeah, Monastero di San Benedetto. So there you go. Uh, and then we have the United States. We have this, the first Trappist brewery in the United States, Spencer, and they break from tradition. They do not make, uh, they, they do make some Belgian styles, uh-huh. but they look a whole lot like uh, just a regular American brewery. They have a good IPA. They have IPAs, they have multiple IPAs. Uh, they have, I think they have a Hellas or a Lager of some uh-huh. kind. Uh, this is they, from St. Joseph's Abbey in Massachusetts. That's right. And it's in Spencer, Massachusetts. So <laughs> that's where the name comes from. Uh, and that was in 2014. And also in 2014, we have Benedictine. Our back, friends. Yes, Benedictine Brewery down in Mount Angel, which we uh, covered in pod 64. We actually went down. We went so, down there and checked it out. Yeah, we talked to Father Martin. Um, and uh, so now we're starting to send it get a trend, sense of trend here. Uh, they're an American brewery and they make a wide variety of beers. So they also make a Hellas. They do make Belgian styles. Their first classic one was called Black Habit and it's a it's a, a medium strength dark beer. Uh, that's what I'm gonna say, because my recollection, and of course to take that, <laughs> you should already uh, question, but is that at that time they were brewing basically classic Abbey style ales. Yeah, I, they, they definitely, that was their lead beer, and they have a Saison and maybe a, a triple. So it's been a little while. COVID has made it, but I've not been down there recently. But uh, yeah, they do those. But that doesn't look that much different than a regular style American beer, because I know they also need black IPA, and they, uh, their Hellas right. is one of the classic ones. I know Father Martin, he really loves that Hellas. It's, it's a great Hellas. Yeah. So, you know, they look kind of like a, uh, a pretty... A pretty classic American. Oh, I'm excited. With a, with a Belgian twist. Yeah. Right. So. Uh, but I'm excited for you to pronounce this next one. Yeah. Right. I should have. This is the one I should have loaded into that. <laughs> so. <laughs> so from the Zurich Abbey in Hungary, wow. we have Zurchi. I'm going to say Chi. You think that's Chi? Yeah. I'll, I'll support you on that. It's Z-I-R-C-I. Yeah. Apatsagi. I'm going to say Apatsagi. What would you say? Apatsagi. Yeah, I don't know. There's accents on both A's. I know. On the second and third A, not the starting A. So Apatsagi. Yeah, I don't know. Yes. Hungarian is a romance language, isn't it? I think so. Is no? it Slavic? I, know, I don't know. I think. Uh, all right, linguists. All you linguists. <laughs> help us out here. We anyway. are um, We're out of our range. So they're a Cistercian uh, monastery. That's right. So that's the, the first splinter group off of the Benedictines. Um, they make some Belgian styles, but they also make a Hellest, which is kind of their, it seems like maybe their, their big one, which is not surprising because mm-hmm. I think Hungary is, is lager country. Uh, they make fruited ales. Uh, their, their, their website is a little bit impenetrable, even when I translate it in Google Translate. It's, uh, <laughs> kind of hard, hard to navigate for me, but um, it looks like, again, more, more American than, than Belgian. So it's interesting. And I wonder if that has anything to do with how Hungary is now embracing beer, if they're looking, if it's pretty far from Belgium. 
And yeah. I wonder if, if the American tradition is having more of an influence in, in Hungary than, uh, than maybe Belgium is. Yeah, I wonder, um, you know, these are slightly challenging beers uh, in the sense, I mean, they're big and, mm. and they're sort of full bodied and full flavored. So I wonder if, especially as you're getting farther away from sort of referencing that tradition that people are familiar with, so people are unfamiliar, that it's easier to sort of brew more approachable beers out of it. Yeah, I think that's probably true, uh, especially if you're familiar with the, the monastic tradition in Belgium uh, and you start a, Bel you start a monastic brewery, um, it makes sense to kind of go with that in a way. Like consumers might understand what you're doing there, but if you don't understand that, then it could just be weird. To yeah, kind of that, exactly. Yeah, that's sort of my point. Like how much do you reference that Trappist tradition as, as familiar to people who are familiar with the Belgian tradition? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna pour this giant beer in my my other. <laughs> I was wondering, I was wondering if we should skip the next one for a while, but then if I finish this, I probably can't finish the pod. So uh, you get one or the other. I think we should pour the next one out because All it's right. the next one in the line. All right, here we go. Also founded in 2015, we're up to 2015. We have Tre Fontaine, which means three something. It might be on the back of that three something. Okay, let's see what it says. Uh, you should uh, Abbey of the Three Fountains. Fountains. Yes. There you are. Which is really hard to decode when it says Trey Fontaine. <laughs> I, I know. But Jeff, you could never have guessed. But Jeff, we have the Google Translate right on the app, right on the uh, label. There you go. From 1873, eucalyptus characterize characterizes the products of this community of Trappist monks. Yes, they, they make a eucalyptus liquor there, ah. which they apparently have done since the 19th century. Uh, that's the only beer they make, and they put in it eucalyptus, wow. which is going to be weird. So I'm a little... So here's a little, little so here's a little fun fact about Patrick, is that uh, I started life in Palo Alto, California, uh, because my Amid parents, the eucalyptus trees? Because my parents met at Stanford University, and the Stanford University campus is littered with the eucalyptus trees and so my one of the more uh sense memory is really strong right so the smell of eucalyptus to me is one of the strongest sense memories i have it just wow. evokes my childhood whenever i run into eucalyptus i just like i'm almost stunned huh so this will be interesting this will be interesting <clears throat> uh oh that was good audio i don't know if i heard it there you go. Boy, that's oh, smell my like home. childhood. <laughs> <laughs> the color is really similar. It either means that either means my childhood was very happy or very traumatic, but either way, it just smells like a, smells like past the past, huh? It smells like eucalyptus. Boy, it does smell like I, so I, I do, don't. I do love the smell of eucalyptus. I'm not so familiar with eucalyptus, so it it's, it smells uh, like eucalyptus. Trust me, <laughs> this is very. It is a medicinal uh, smell, which... Uh, yeah, th in this case, it is more. I mean, I don't associate the smell of eucalyptus trees with... But I, but I see how you're saying that right here because it's combined with the smell of the beer itself. There's a little bit of that medicinal twinge to it. Uh -huh. Tinge to it. I need, or, or herbal, you could say. Too. Herbal, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Well, it's interesting. On the palate... The eucalyptus is far more subdued than it is on the nose. Yeah. 
So you were a little worried about this. I here. was. I think this is fabulous. I think it's pretty darn good. This is wow. Uh, I would have been worried too had I known in advance that we were going to be tasting a eucalyptus beer. But this is really something unique and special, and and, it, and it's as you say, it's subdued on the palate, so it's not overwhelming at all. No, it's it's much more. It is herbal. Eucalyptus has that uh, quality that, that tickles the trigeminal nerve. So the the nerve in our mouth that can detect uh, carbonation, for example, but also uh, toothpaste, this, this, the, mm, right. you know, the zing of toothpaste or, or uh, uh, the, the fire of peppers. Um, you can get a little bit of, it's like menthol and eucalyptus. You can also bring it on, Dr. Science. <laughs> yeah, so my type. All I know is it tastes good. It's so, a, um, there, there's a little cooling. But you're right, it. yeah. Yeah, uh, right. Like, like, like menthol a bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, I mean, it's not a beer I'd want to drink every day, all day. No, it's a very distinct beer. But it seems like that eucalyptus also gets a slightly dry note. It, it, yeah. it kind of helps dry it out a bit. Yeah, reminds me of the bark of the eucalyptus tree, which is kind of papery that kind of peels off, mm. kind of like a birch tree, sort of. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that a lot. That's really good. This one, I, I think, is a, again a strong beer. So, so this is the monastery. Yeah, well, I think uh, <laughs> these are going to my head. Yeah, dear listener, uh, this is the monastery of Saint Vincent and Saint Anast- uh, Anastasio in Italy, which dates, according to our notes here, to the fourth century. century which but, is crazy. But they started brewing in 2015. Yep, Trey Fontaine did. All right. Uh, while we're sipping on this, I will go to the next one. Yes, this is an 8.5% beer, by the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Which is why I'm a little dizzy. This next one, I don't even know how to pronounce. It is so crazy. I got it. Ready? This next one, we, 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 we go to Poland next for another Cistercian. And Patrick, all right, man. Okay, it's Cisterci Broar Sistra. Oh, God. See, you thought the first word referred to the Cistercian, but I think the third word does. Yeah, you're right. Shishirsky Boulevard Sistrogref. I like it. The has, first, that has absolutely nothing to do with the name, but the first word, I kid you not, is spelled S Z C Z Y R Z Y C K I. There are three Z's and no vowels in the first eight letters. Which is like uh, the Duke coach, Shishesky. It, right? it so that's why it's Shishirsky. It's probably, yeah, it's probably pronounced like, like, Siski. Yeah. Uh, I apologize to all our uh, Polish listeners that we're befuddled by, by their language. <laughs> it's it's our fault, not yours. Uh, Although and, I have and, to say, and, this, I think Slavic languages are just just baffling to me. I, they are. I When I was in... Check. I was like, I don't have any idea. I'm sure I've told the story many times that um, I couldn't even, I couldn't even pronounce "thank you" <laughs> over and over and over again. I tried. Like, no, that's not how you pronounce it. They're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? It's just uh, very difficult. So again, here we have uh, another. So, so, so this Poland. is the Abbey from Poland, and they and they're making a, a wide variety, including a Grodziski, which is. Uh, native yeah. Polish style, which yeah. is very cool, but they're making a wide variety, which is interesting. So we're again not super close. But to they do the do Belgian. some Belgian styles. They do do some Belgian. So, so there's a little reference point in almost all of these. Breweries. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 
The next one. Cardinia. Cardinia. Guess where that's from. Probably anybody can guess that. Spain. España. San, San Pedro. Uh, and they make one beer, a triple. There you go. Founded in 2016. I don't know when the monastery was founded, but the, the brewery was founded. I suspect slightly before that. Yes, I'm guessing slightly <laughs> before that. Uh, after that, we have one I think you'll find interesting. Uh, the Mount St. Bernard uh, uh-huh. Travis Brewery, which is 20, uh, roughly 25 miles northeast of Birmingham. As my Google map was looking at, I was like trying to You're almost guess. in Manchester by then. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of in the wrong direction from Manchester, so okay. it's 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 east instead of. If you say so, anyway. but it's Saint Bernard Abbey, and they started brewing in 2018. Yep. So not so not so long ago, and they did an interesting thing. They made a beer called Tint Meadow, T Y N T, which is a big boomer at 7.4 percent. And they did refermentation of the bottle, kind of a classic. It looks, mm-hmm. it looks. You look at it as a dark beer. It looks like kind of a classic dark beer. But um, they used English malts and English yeast, so they're they're going, they're calling their own tradition out with the uh, refermentation in the bottle, which is like cask condition. And ah, I think that's very cool. Yeah. It's a really cool idea. And of course, they use their own native malts. So, in some ways, I've I've always when, when this came out, I thought that's so cool. They're, they're you're definitely referencing the Belgian style, but you're you're pointing out that Bel- that Britain has its own very similar kind of tradition that you can you don't have to you don't have to copy it because you can you can evoke it without right. without leaving your own tradition. Yeah. Oh and you're right. Yeah you said twenty five miles northeast of Birmingham. That's right. Northwest is where Manchester lies. I knew you I knew you could see it in your mind. <laughs> Uh, my my eight point whatever adult yeah. mind right now is <laughs> not functioning at full capacity. Just so we're clear. Uh, the next one is super fascinating to me. Oh my uh, gosh! Look at this one. Yeah, it's a Benedictine uh, monastery in Arkansas called Country Monks. It's the brewery Subiaco Abbey. Yeah, Subiaco. I guess it's in Arkansas. So that's probably not how they pronounce it. <laughs> Well, I could say, yeah, I could try to be offensive. And... Well, I'm just saying Americans have a pronounced uh, local dialect, and especially in the South, but also yeah. in the West. But I wouldn't even know how to do a Southern accent and say Subiaco. No, I wouldn't either. Uh, and they, they really, much like uh, Spencer, just have a pretty pretty standard line, quite a bit, quite a few beers, too. I went and, and looked at their... Uh, their list, and then I went and looked at Untapped to see how many they'd made yeah. overall. And it's really funny if you go to Untapped with a lot of these. It just, you know, they they've been around a decade, many of them a decade or more, and like one beer. Yeah. <laughs> that's all they made for one for, for ten years of one beer. I mean, I think that's easy to lose sight of the fact that they're doing this for a very specific purpose, that's right. which is to support the monastery itself. And which... you. And you may not be able to do that in Arkansas by selling by like selling triple. yeah some really <laughs> Belgian style triple exactly precisely my point yeah so if an, if you're in Arkansas and you're trying to really support the monastery and monasteries are a dying I was going to say dying breed that's not the right term but institution dying institution yeah, yeah they're they're a struggling institution they are they really are so this is important to them absolutely you know, being able to support the monastery is key and so making sure you brew beer that people want to buy is Absolutely essential. All right, we have two more. I'm going to let you pronounce the first one. Uh, I got this. All right. This is Belgium. Oh, but it's Flemish. Damn. Uh, well, it's, but this, these are clearly the Latin. So. Oh, yeah, you're right. Uh, and I had all that Latin 
in my education. <laughs> Find that ring, I grew up man. in 1950s. <laughs> uh, I'm just going to say that Braxatorium. Yes. Parsensis. That's how I would say it. Thank you. Uh, Norbertine from Park Abbey in Louvain, Belgium. And they make they make, they make Belgian style, so it's a little brewery, uh, and they actually have a couple of lines. Like they have the Liberty line. And I can't remember what the other one is. They make different beers than that, but they're mm-hmm. they're they're Belgian brewery. They make Belgian styles. Not surprising. Very nice. And then the last one is Grimbergen, which is you'll you'll say, well, we Grimbergen has existed forever, and it's true that Grimbergen is a it's a brand, but it's been owned by a bunch of conglomerates, and they kind of they sell. The conglomerates who sell it in Belgium are different than the conglomerates who sell it outside of Belgium. Oh, no. Heineken is involved. Other people are involved. Wait, they licensed the name or they just took the name? They licensed the name. Okay. But somehow Grimbergen in 2019, so not long back. ago, yeah, they decided to take it back and start making their own styles. And they make a brute, a quad, and a pale, now all in the, classically in the Belgian styles. Uh, and that's it's a really – it's a – Absolutely. It's in Grimberg in Belgium, which I didn't stop to look to see where that is. It's a small country, though, so it can't be too far from anything. <laughs> yes. uh, gorgeous, gorgeous. Happy building. Man. Uh, okay, so here, I'm, I'm sorry to be the dark cloud in this sunny day, but uh, at least in the United States, the sort of era of Belgian ale seems to have subsided. Oh, massively. Yeah. So for a while, they were just like massively popular. Uh has that been replaced by demand from other parts of the world? I mean, what, yeah, I guess I'm, you know what I mean? Like, so, no. so what is the state of the market for Belgian ales? In America? In America and globally. Yeah, I think Belgium had its heyday as people were getting more into sophisticated beers. But then they would tend to default to, uh, like in America, you know, we came, we found our own voice and started making those beers. Um, and, and Belgium is a small country yeah. that doesn't have such huge uh, cultural force behind it. So I, it does seem like that was a little bit of a blip. One of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast today is because I still love, love, love Belgian beers. And I feel like the fact that they're not what people currently like in, in, in beer mm-hmm. is sad to me and I, <laughs> I i've been i've spent the last maybe five years talking a lot about loggers yeah. and trying to rehabilitate loggers in my writing i feel like i need to get back to belgian ales because yeah. i like them so well and I, I do like how most of these breweries that are founded fairly close to belgium have continued to stay within the belgian tradition yeah. so it seems like there is enough cultural force uh at least near belgium that these styles are still thriving which is which is pretty cool to me and i would love you know, I, I you know this beer that we're drinking now, this Trey Fontaine. The beer have a name? Triple, triple. Yeah, uh, it's it's something I can't imagine any beer person in America not having appreciated having tried this beer. Geeking right? out about this yeah. beer, yeah, absolutely. You, like beer, you should try one of one, at least one bottle. It's such an interesting yeah. beer. Well, the thing I'll say as the idiot of the two of the pair in this podcast is that Belgian beers are immensely complex in a, in a wonderful way. Like if you really start getting into beer and start being able to sort of discern the different flavors and profiles, drinking a Belgian beer is like this explosion of complexity that's wonderful. Like, and it's it's really out of step with where America is. It's yeah. all yeast and uh, it's it's nothing to do with hops. Right. You, you don't 
there, there some Belgian beers have some hops in them, but it's just not where they are. And it's certainly not the kind of hops that we have in America now, the juiciness. Right. It's not really, you, yeah. you find <laughs> to the extent that Belgian ales are juicy, they're juicy because they have a lot of uh, esters, those, those right. fruity characters that we yep. get out of the yeast. So, um, but I think, you know, people do like sweet. These are not challenging in the sense of, uh, you know, in the last beer. So this beer has eucalyptus, which is definitely a specific flavor. Yeah. So leaving that aside, you know, last year we talked about flavors like like toffee, uh, you know, warm bread. Um, in in many Belgian ales, you're going to find the the esters are going to kick off uh, flavors uh, like fruit. Esters present fruit. The spiciness that comes from the phenols are are, are familiar spices like cinnamon, clove, and allspice, those kinds of flavors, mm-hmm. which are really comfortable and like people know them, recognize them. They're not challenging like wild ales yeah. are with a bunch of very unfamiliar flavors that are quite aggressive and weird. Yeah. Um, these, yeah. are, these are familiar to just humans who have had food before. <laughs> yeah. And, but I think that's interesting because people, if you talk to an American or maybe other parts of the world, I can't I can't uh, speak to, but if you talk about Belgian beer, then the two things get conflated, right? The wild ales and the monastic ales are conflated, and the wild ales are can be pretty wild. They can, and, and I, they are an acquired taste. Yeah. So I get that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I think it, uh, Orval is the beer that, you know, you, you can sit and just think for – 25 minutes about what you're drinking like it's just so complex yeah yeah it, uh, it's so uh, interesting and so multi-layered it's just amazing yeah. it's very confusing as a beer for people who have not had a beer like that it's, right. it's got some hops it's got some caramel it's got bretonomyces yeah. can be dry man it makes me want to go out eat some moule feet and uh and have a belgian beer i know let's go do it that's pretty awesome <laughs> well we should probably move on because this is getting a little bit long in the tooth yeah, indeed, but uh, I would I would love to encourage everybody to you know I know it's been a long time since you've had a good Belgian beer. Go down there, buy buy one that's not wild. Don't you know? I mean, by all means, buy a good if you want to. But uh, yeah, you know, get get one of these these Trappist beers, and clearly some of them are available in the United States. Uh, so yeah, if you're if you're if you're around, you can find the Zinder, which is very nice. You can find the Trefontaine, which is very nice and also very interesting. Yeah. Uh, so look look for these. Also, just the classics are great yeah. too. And we mentioned uh, they now have a nice handy little logo, which is a hexagonal logo that says "Authentic Trappist uh, Product." That's right. So, so the look for that, are easy. Look for that logo, and then uh, and you're golden. Yeah, and buy that, the beer, and that the Belgian Trappists are really available here. So yeah, you can find them at your finer. Uh, beer stores. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you, Jeff, for revisiting the Trappist Ales. Indeed. Uh, Pod 16 is another deep dive if you want to go back a few years. <laughs> yeah, it was really fascinating to listen to that. Like, <laughs> I thought, oh, this is gonna, we're going to sound terrible. We're, we're like super professionals now. No, nope. Sounds exactly like we recorded it last week. <laughs> oh, boy. Can't, de- can't teach an old dog new tricks. No, you right. certainly can't. All right. So we got to dip into the mailbag. We got some mail. Awesome. We have mail. The yeah. first mail. So keep sending us this mail because I love having a full mailbag. Uh, yeah, mailbag's the best. Mailbag's the best. It, it reminds us we're alive and actually people are listening. That's right. Uh, Tom Sheehan writes, I drink Burt Grant's IPA several times 
I drank, sorry, I drank Burt Grant's IPAs. I was clued in halfway there. <laughs> Mid-80s to mid-90s. This was in Seattle. You could get Scottish everywhere on tap, and I never saw the IPA. It didn't seem that influential. I remember vividly buying bottles at the local Larry's. It was very pale and quite bitter, but not overly so. One of the things that's fascinating to me about this is that uh, I think this goes to show that although the Northwest is, an, is a, a distinctive and fairly integrated uh, cultural region. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we had way more IPA down here than we had Scottish ale. I remember yeah. having a lot more IPA than Scottish ale. Yeah. I think I think probably Grant's IPA had a massive influence on Portland. And apparently, it may not have had such a big influence on on Seattle, which is fascinating. Yeah, isn't that funny? Those quirks of history, like yeah. just yeah, what catches on and what <laughs> what people take and run with is just totally. And I guess that makes sense, you know. I mean, what what happened subsequently in Seattle? You had uh, Red Hook, which was a little malt heavy, wasn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, it kind of went through a few iterations, but their their uh, ESB was yeah, it was malt, it was it was a kind of a big malty beer. I think it probably had some hops, but not yeah, not like what we think of. That's just an ESB. That's just yeah, that's fascinating. All right. cultural an- cultural anthropologist, get on this. That's right. Report back. <laughs> uh, you want to do the next one? Okay, Mason Astley, who is a uh, longtime commenter of the pod, formerly in Boston, has now moved to Vermont. So I got uh, caught up with Mason. I was like, are you still in Boston? No, in Vermont. Okay, anyway, uh, I've been wondering if you guys pay attention to brewing days when you hit upon your local beer store. I know you get a lot of stuff sent to you, but how would you factor that in? I find... Uh, that beer that's more than three or four weeks off brew tends to not be the same, particularly aromatic coffee beers, of course. But lately, my uh, local store seems to have more beers without dates than I would prefer. Some other stores only have old beer, so I will see something I like, but if it's from December and I don't want to pay full, and I don't want to pay full price for it, reasonably enough, it's like buying an old banana. I acknowledge that there is some confirmation bias here as well, but I have done blind tasting of the same beer at fresher ones for obvious both me and others. Any thoughts? Uh, my first thought is absolutely, positively, 100%. Yes. Uh, date matters a lot. Totally. Especially, as you say, with aromatic hoppy beers, because that's the first thing that'll go. Uh, so, yes, the, the question was, do you pay attention to brewing dates? That's one of the first things I look for. Fortunately, it's become much more common to put brewing dates on beer. Yeah, in the Northwest, I found that too. I, and and honestly, almost. I don't okay. buy I don't buy a beer in, in in the package unless it's from a big brewery. If I'm if I, you know if I'm going to buy something from Sierra Nevada, shoots or something, yeah. they have enough throughput. I know I'm not going to worry about it. if I'm buying like you know yeah. uh, Sierra Nevada panel. It's going to be it's going to be fresh enough. I'm not worried about it. But it, if it's a small brewery and I and I'm and I'm buying a can, I'm if it doesn't have a, a date stamp, I'm not going to buy it because who knows how long it's been sitting there. Yeah, yeah, and we uh, we've had this experience. Like there's there's a couple of really nice beer stores, and you know that's the challenge, right? You can offer a huge variety, mm-hmm. but then it doesn't always just fly off your shelves. And so, you, as a consumer, you got to be a little careful. And so, I've had these interactions with Jeff, in fact, where I was like, "Hey, look, they've got this beer," and then look for the date. Ah, it's a little bit old. Yeah, like English beers are particularly. They often have date stamps, but they are, that's another, that's another type of beer. Yeah. These low alcohol sort of sessionable ales can also degrade quickly. 
That's right. The, the truth is the two uh, Trappists that we had today were both long in the tooth, and I knew it was going to be fine because Trappist sales are so strong. And then I figured they're yeah. going to So alcohol is a great, great preservative. <laughs> yeah. But you're, yeah, if it's a, if it's a lager or a, yeah. a hoppy beer, no way. And often these English beers haven't been well treated in, in, in root anyway. <laughs> and so if they're old, then that's it. I'm done. So uh, I guess that the takeaway is a couple things. One, date stamp absolutely to me essential these days like i don't forgive not having a date no. i don't yeah i don't i just don't buy the beer yeah I, exactly like, like i won't yeah, yeah i won't buy it um as you say if it's a big brewery and i know that it's like it's probably pretty fresh then that's fine but in general like i want to see the date and i want to be able to evaluate it uh by the way this is a good question so he talks about um uh, uh i assume this is recent so we're in march and he talks about december so that's about uh, three months so what's your What's your heuristic about dates? Like how far, how old? Yeah, so breweries uh, in America use 90 days as the benchmark. And, yeah. and um, IPAs are a little bit harder to pull off, but breweries still use that as a benchmark. And they will actually engineer their beers so that they evolve in a way that they may change, they may not be as quite as tasty in 90 days as they are at 15 days, but that they're still consumable and palatable to the customer right they feel like if it if it makes it 90 days uh the customer should be able to get a beer that they find tasty um and that, that may be that you know like the the mosaic may fall out uh, yeah. a little bit and the whatever the simcoe comes on uh, by, by day 90 whereas the first 15 days you're getting a lot of that you know that, the opposite yeah yeah whatever whatever it is uh but that's my that's my benchmark and it's strong beers of stout or abiel you know and i'm not nearly as fastidious but um uh actually in the last podcast we had uh rubens which i knew had been in my fridge a month and when we cracked that beer i was a little bit anxious about it because i thought it's still a cook so it was still going to be less than 90 days but i was i I wondered if even it had lost a step. Right. It actually hadn't, which is credit to the brewery. Uh, but yeah, you will you will notice they, they drop off. What, yeah. What's your when you think about? It, how do yeah, you think three about months it? is like my uh, my cutoff. Like uh, again, if it's a strong beer, then that's fine. I, you know, uh, I don't think too much about dates. But but yeah, for uh, you know, if it's an IPA, if it's an English beer, English beer probably even less. But three, three after three months, that's forget it. Like I'm not buying it. Right. Yeah. English beer is really perishable. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm looking for something a much, much more recent in there. And then if it's like, yeah, uh, more sessionable, lighter alcohol, but like really aromatic beer, I also know that after maybe a couple months, right. you're going to lose a lot. So That's I'm really right. looking for super fresh there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say as a benchmark, three months is a pretty good, as you say, because breweries have that in mind as well. And they don't like, by the way, in all fairness, right, breweries don't want to see their beer on the shelf after three months. Like, they don't gain anything from that. A little bit of sales for terrible PR is not good. Like, you want people to enjoy your beer and have beer presented as fresh as possible. So Yeah, absolutely. And they don't have, you know, once it leaves their loading dock, they don't have full control over what's... They literally sell it to the distributor. Yeah. So then, the distributor then is... Yeah in control of that beer so it's it's but it's, they're not gonna the consumer who gets an old a six-month-old ipa is not gonna blame the distributor <laughs> blame the brewery yeah that's the, what's on the label right so it's it's tough but uh but dates are essential i think it should be absolutely considered 
something you've got to put on your package. And I think the consumers should respond. And that's the way that the breweries can, uh, you know, ensure that the customer at least has the information if they've got a bad distributor. Right. But that's also the way you can get distributors to right. start responding to this. <laughs> because if they put the date on there and consumers are responding to the date, then distributors respond and they won't put four month old beer out. So, uh, yeah, great, great question. Thanks for the comment, Mason. All right. Well, uh, <laughs> this has gone long enough, so we better <laughs> shut the door here. A few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you, so please send your questions or comments to jeff at beervonablog.com or on Twitter at beervonapod. Jeff blogs at the Beervana blog, and he tweets at Beervana. Patrick tweets at Beernomics, and... He posts on Instagram. On the Beervana Pod, Pod Instagram, which is still, yeah. It's coming along. It's coming along. I'm starting to get more used to it. Yeah, yeah. So look, look, look in both places. I know that that's where the youths are. So <laughs> I'm, trying to follow, I'm trying to follow the kids. You just lost half of them with that last statement. Unfortunately, <laughs> maybe they don't listen to the show. All right, Jeff. Cheers. cheers we have you. this uh, wonderful eucalyptus triple from... Uh, Trey Fontaine. The Three Fountains. The Three Fountains. Cheers. Cheers.